And welcome back to another episode of the Knowledge Podcast by Wahoo. I'm Neil Henderson. And I am Jeff Hubler. And today we're going to talk about climbing, time trialing, and climb trialing, which you will be seeing throughout the month of May in the Giro. Neil, what exactly is a climb trial? Well, it's my term for an uphill time trial. So, There are races that have standard time trials, generally flatter rolling courses. There are climbs that are often part of courses. But interestingly, there have been some race directors who have put those two things together, smashed them together, taking a climb and a time trial together as a climb trial. It is a time trial that is basically all uphill. There you have it, folks. Climb trial. Along with that, we're also going to talk about some of the extreme demands involved in a Grand Tour and how the body responds and reacts to those demands in the context of a three-week-long race. Well, one thing I also want to bring up, today we are going to be focusing on the Men's Giro, the Men's Tour of Italy. The Women's Giro, aka the Giro Donne or the Giro Rosa, occurs later in the year in July. So we'll be coming back. We'll be, we'll be back around to Italy later on in the year to give the Women's Giro its own due. But for right now, we'll talk about this one since it is the first Grand Tour of the year. It is notorious for being brutal. Massive climbs, unpredictable weather, crazy terrain. And this year's edition is bound to entertain just like they always do, especially with a climb trial and over 16,000 meters of climbing in the third week alone. Ouch. Yeah. Two of those days, over 5,000 meters of climbing in each day. And remember, there's a total elevation gain of over 51,400 meters over the 21 stages. That sounds like a lot. It's a lot. It's a ridiculous amount. Speaking of that weather, how many American fans remember those photos of Andy Hamston, the, the Gavia, the snow-covered, absolutely brutal stage? Interestingly, as you may or may not know, Andy didn't win the stage that day, but he did get into the pink jersey, the leader's jersey. Just a little FYI on that one. So we've already talked about climbing and some components of climbing previously in episode 47, if you want to go back and and check that out, the difference between the pros and you. But since we're going to be watching some epic racing, let's really get into this. And just for perspective here, if you're one of those Americans and you use those funny freedom units, freedom units, like foot, 51,000 meters of climbing sounds like a lot because it is. And just for perspective, that's nearly six trips up Mount Everest. Trying to fathom how difficult a single stage with 5,000 meters of climbing is. There's three of them in this year's race. And so one of the ways we can break this apart and think about it is actually how fast you go uphill, which there's a term known as van. Which, again, from its uh, Italian roots, would be, Jeff, since you lived in Italy, can you give this one a whirl? Velocitia Assessionale Media. Yes, V-A-M, or in English, the rate of vertical ascent. And this is how many meters vertically you're gaining per hour. 
So it's a rate of gaining elevation. Cool thing about them is that if you're on a climb that's modestly steep around five, six percent or above, there's a really direct correlation between your VAM and effectively your watts that you're generating per kilogram of U plus bike. So there's some fun math that you can do. And you know me, I love love to do math. math. You can do a little something like this. If you have your rate of ascent VAM, which is a value that you can put on your computer element, I can set that up and have my current VAM or lap VAM and see that. If you divide that value by 300, you actually get your watts per kilo of U plus bike. So good example, if you do a a long climb and you average a VAM of 900, divide that by 300, you're gonna get three for your watts per kilo. That's the combination of you plus your bike. So, you know, if you weigh 75 kilos and your bike weighs eight kilos and 83 kilo net, you would have three times 83 equaling 249 watts that you would have produced for that long climb. I love the math. Thankfully, you guys don't have to do the math in your head. You can put that little you can just put that screen on, on there. Your, yeah, yep. You can see your vertical ascent. The other thing that that's useful for is if somebody doesn't have a power meter or if your battery dies or it's just not working that day, whatever, you can still get an estimate of how hard you're going if you're looking at that BAM. If, if you know you can sustain 500, but you start a climb with a few other folks and you're going 750, that's going to tell you, hey, I might need to back off a little bit. Yeah. It's also good for for planning purposes, right? So we can get an estimate of what output do I need and how long is it going to take me? How long will it take you? Crazy enough, you know, did actually one of the stages of the Giro a few years ago, the same day I was over there. Were you in the race? Uh, Not in the race. I was at the race, Jeff. Uh, I was coaching some some athletes in the race. And and then uh, it was the day before the final time trial, they were going up the Finestra climb. And, uh, wildly, you know, it was still, it was stage 20 for them. So they're already tired, right? In the third week, it's a pretty challenging event for me to do that entire climb. That was just under two hours, an hour and 51 minutes. The leaders did that climb in an hour. Like they were nearly twice as fast, which again, I was holding somewhere on average, a little under three Watts per kilo. I wasn't holding absolutely at my limit because it was going to take too long because the climb was so big. And you were carrying extra water bottles too, right? Oh, uh, always. Absolutely. I was helping out people along the way, just like I always do, but they were going closer to six Watts per kilo, a little under, but still it's just amazing that scale and speed. If you think about climbing, if you have 5,000 meters to climb and you're an average person who maybe can push two and a half Watts per kilo at your FTP, and you might be able to then sustain say two Watts per kilo for a number of climbs, you're going to be gaining about 200 meters per hour VAM. So if you just do the real simple math, 5,000 meters divided by 600 meters per hour, it's going to take you over eight hours just to do the uphills. That doesn't include the downhills or the flat sections in between. So the scale of what a 5,000 meter day of climbing is, like what they do, you know, they might finish those stages in seven hours. For us, like, yeah, we're we're looking into 10. (laughs) And that's if we were rested, fresh, coming into it, motivated, not in the third week or the second week, just so wild. Yeah, I can relate. Personal experience I had just uh, last February, I was over in Colombia doing uh, Transcorderas. And, you know, it's only an eight-day stage race. Only? Only. On gravel. At altitude. But, um, 
you know, overall we had, uh, what do we have? A little over 22,000 meters of elevation over overall, but stage seven was over 4,000 meters of climbing. And um, it, it destroyed me. You know, that stage took me about 10 hours. Uh, you know, it was on gravel and we were at over 4,000 meters. But, you know, it, it is massive what these guys are doing and they're doing it day after day after day. Yep. It is wild. Uh, many years ago when I was coaching, uh, Taylor getting ready for the, for the Giro and for other grand tours, I wanted to get an idea of what that was like. So I rode every single climb in Boulder that I could together. And it, I barely got 4,000 meters of climbing by going up NCAR, up Flagstaff, up Magnolia, up Sugarloaf, up Four Mile Canyon, up Lee Hill, up Old Stage. And it was over seven hours to do that. And I was like, oh my gosh, they had days that were five and 6,000 meters in the races that he was doing. I was just, I was like, oh my gosh, it, it gave me a better perception and understanding of the demand and, and what kind of training and efforts would be required to be able to survive there. Keep in mind, in a Grand Tour or any pro rider, they really don't do three hard weeks of training at the level of what the Grand Tour requires. Even with like Rowan, when he was targeting GC back in 2017 and 2018, there would be typically two weeks of really heavily loaded training. The first week having a lot of volume, but not as much intensity. And then that second week, we would go and replicate certain days of what would be like the Giro or the tour with the climbing and the time trial efforts, putting those pieces together to get a bit of a stress with some fatigue, but not at not the, the whole thing, not the whole thing. Cause it just is too much. And this, this kind of, you know, relates back to the rest of us normal humans is, you know, you don't do the race before the race. You don't need to do that. Absolutely not. Like any stage race you may do, or, or even a single epic day, a long one day race, you do not need to ride the amount of time that you anticipate racing. You should not, in fact, try to train that distance or that time because it will simply be too much. You will just be tired and you would need weeks to recover from that before you could gain the benefit from it. And in fact, when you have to rest that much, you actually lose out on what you had built. I would say probably Transcordieras, Jeff. Oh, God. Yeah, you were so overdone. And, and I mean, here we are, what, a couple months later, and you're maybe... I can almost see daylight again. You're almost kind of recovered from that eight days excessive overload. So keep in mind what you're going to see in, in a Grand Tour and the kind of riding and, and the demand of that is absolutely wild. Yeah. So, you know, we, we brought this up earlier. Let's talk about the race of truth, right? Mm -hmm. So time trialing and, you know... What are the keys for success? And, you know, I think you have a little insight onto what's, what's important here. I've, so, been, I've been fortunate yeah. to, to have, had, uh, have worked with riders that have had successes in time trials at Grand Tours. Now, when a, when a race starts with a time trial, it's a little bit simpler in a way. It's you're coming in rested. Uh, you know what the athlete is capable of doing in terms of kind of power generating capacity. They don't have that accumulated fatigue. So a stage one time trial is, is kind of simple. But even in that context, time trialing for sure has certain elements and it's really power production and your coefficient of drag area that we call CDA. Aerodynamics, baby. Aerodynamic drag. And just like climbing speed is going to be well predicted by looking at watts per kilo. 
your speed in a time trial is going to be very well predicted by watts divided by CDA. So it's not simple, though, to measure CDA like it is weight. Uh, you either have to go to a wind tunnel or you have to have some specialized equipment, testing, equations, whatnot to, to measure CDA. But effectively, that CDA is is the drag, how slippery you are against the wind. And so in professional racing, everyone there is going to be on really good equipment. The bikes they have are all going to be quite fast. There's some that might be very, very minutely marginally faster as the bike itself. Everyone's going to have the ceramic bearings. They're going to have all of those special things going to have your speed play zero arrow pedals for sure. That's going to save you 0.005 CD on your CDA. Uh, for those of you who know what that is, uh, you can do that math yourself and see that you'll go just a little bit faster uh, with something like that in there. But everyone's going to have that fast. They're going to have the fast bits and bobs, as I think the Brits call it. The other thing is anyone who specializes in time trialing or the general classification is also going to be doing some additional testing to find exactly which helmet is fastest for them with their position, what skin suit, because what is fastest potentially for one rider is not always going to be faster for another, even if they're similar size, have a similar position. That's why you have to do, they have to do a lot of testing to identify really what is the fastest to reduce their drag. When we think about then a time trial and a grand tour, there's another element that when we get into time trials that are occurring in the second and third weeks, that there is that accumulated load and fatigue. So great example, the 2012 Giro, um, I was coaching Taylor and the, the, the final stage, stage 21, it's a time trial in Milan, 28 kilometers long. The day before though, they climbed the Stelvio and a bunch of other stuff because it was 5,934 meters of climbing over 227 kilometers. It took Taylor eight hours and two minutes, which is absolutely amazing when you consider his total energy expenditure on the day, Jeff. 8,100 kilojoules of energy spent while he was on the bike. It is wild. So just think of the energy demand. I, I was actually there at the race because I had previewed that that Milan TT course to be able to try to give him some information, had a video from the GoPro that I rode the course and went over everything with him. We did this while he was having dinner, which this dinner took a long while because he went up and filled his plate full three times. I was watching, I was like, that's an absurd amount of food that he's eating. But he hadn't uploaded that file yet. <laughs> I didn't realize, like, literally, he had, a, he had spent 8,000 kilojoules on the bike. Like, you can't even imagine how much food you have to take in. And again, you can't just do it all by, you know, carbohydrates and this and that. I mean, he was just putting olive oil on everything, just trying to get yeah. that energy density, up, which is yeah. wild. So the next day, you know, he had a, he had that that 28k time trial, and man, it was a it was a, a challenging thing coming at stage 21, and he did well. You know, his power output though was about 10 percent, a little more than 10 percent under what he was able to do earlier fresh. in the race, yeah. fresh. Yeah. But he just went by feel. He didn't have a heart rate monitor on because we know that your body is responding definitely very differently in the second and third week. And so just like the power output, he couldn't predict exactly what kind of power he could hold. He was actually using predominantly perceived effort. And that, you know, when we're at that level and that fatigued, that's going to be your best feedback 
Yeah. You can only do what you can do. You can only do. do what you can do, right? And right. so looking at those numbers and having an expectation of why aren't, why why is my heart rate not going up? Why can I not do the power? Sometimes it's a little bit demoralizing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, understanding that these are natural responses for the body, you know, increased parasympathetic nervous system activity is going to start shutting you down, but you still have to perform. So exactly. yep, turn the data off, you have to record it. Exactly. Go by how you feel. Yeah. Even a single long day, you can see that. If you go pretty hard in a long day early, you're going to see your heart rate is pretty high. But as you continue to go, often what happens is you just can't push as hard. You know, your output is reduced. If you have a power meter, you'll see you just can't push the watts. But your heart rate will also be lower because you're also not able to do that same amount of work as you go. And then, and again, I'm not talking about in a one or two hour long effort. You're going to, we're talking more like six, eight, 10, 12 hour kind of thing. And in these three week grand tours, most riders are seeing a 15 to 25 beat per minute drop in their maximum heart rate and at least a 10 to 15 beat per minute drop at the same relative effort. That's very, very significant. Yeah, there's even a pretty cool study. It's it's titled Analyzing a Cycling Grand Tour. Can we monitor fatigue with intensity or load ratios? That's the title. It's a pretty, you know, it's a it's a long wordy title, but they were ultimately the conclusion is that using a combination of perceived effort in addition to heart rate and power output gives a more accurate representation of the fatigue that riders are experiencing than if you just use power output, heart rate, or a ratio of, of power and heart rate. Right. And we're starting to see a lot of that through data collection now, knowing that subjective measurements are very, very effective and often outperform objective measurements. And especially in a situation like this, where fatigue is compounding day after day after day, we have to really be aware of those subjective measurements. And and how do you feel? Exactly. So with that in mind, when you do your training and you upload files, if you're doing that, collecting that, make sure that you're adding in some color commentary. Your comments are really important to be adding in with your files of, you know, what you did, maybe the basics of it. You don't need to, you know, lay everything out, what the workout was, because the structure of the workout, maybe, you know, you already know that from the title or what was planned, but more how you felt that's really going to be more instructive and maybe, you know, some other things that are useful, like, you know, if you're in a race, you know, what equipment you use, what tires, tire size, tire pressure, those kind of things, what you wore, if you're doing a time trial, what helmet, you know, what skin suit, yada, yada, what wheels. Right. And those are just, they're learning moments, but not only are they learning moments for now, but when you go back and say, do the same thing next year, what, what happened? What did I do? What do I need to change? How did I feel? Here's what I can expect. Exactly. And that's things like how to warm up in that second and third week. Those are things that we adjusted, you know, when I was working with Taylor and Rowan specifically to make sure they they had to do a very different warm up in the third week than they do in the first week because of that fatigue. And and most people consider like, oh, they probably just don't need to warm up as much because, you know, da, da, da. And, and in fact, the opposite yeah. is in is what they do. Normally, when they're super rested, 30 minute warm up is all they need. They're ready to rip and go where it's in the second or third week, it takes over an hour of warm-up and sometimes a morning ride for an hour, previewing the course, and then that one-hour extended warm-up on the trainer to be actually ready to go. Yeah, and that brings up a, something that usually when we do warm-ups, the, like, the longer the effort, probably the less the warm-up and the shorter the effort, the harder the effort. 
the more warm-up, tying into a time trial, and this time trialing at the end when you're fatigued like that, what what kind of time are we looking at? Yeah, it's... This, the stage 20, yeah. 18.6K, yeah. and it's a climb trial. A lot of them are going to preview a good portion of that, just to know exactly what's coming. There's there's a little bit of a flatter section, and then it really climbs uphill. That race, there's a likelihood of a lot of riders will start on a time trial bike and switch to a climbing bike, a road bike then. Uh, there's a certain point where they're allowed to do that, and so they need to actually practice that. So that's part of that pre-ride in the morning, that they'll go out whatever time in the morning, 9, 10 a.m., and go ride an hour and practice that bike transition with the staff to make sure it's dialed in. So they get an hour of riding there, and then normally when they get to the trainer for that time trial, they're going to have, you know, in some cases, if it is that third week like it is here, a warm-up for easy bit, 20, 30 minutes where they just are getting their body going because it often takes that 20, 30 plus minutes before anything feels even remotely okay. And then they go into the normal intensity efforts, which are going to be normally one to two minutes around threshold. And then sometimes a couple short efforts, just over 30 seconds to a minute, kind of near that power at VO2 max or map power. And then often a couple, two, three, five to 10 second accelerations just to get everything fully activated. And that's something to keep in mind too. This, you know, this prep, this warm up isn't just like, okay, we got the time trial. They're going to warm up and jump on. No, they've been doing this for several hours in the morning, you know, like previewing the course, etc. getting, you know, if the weather's changed, they got to change the whole exactly. prep. What and, wheels are they yeah, going to yeah. use? They're going to use rain tires. All of those things are factors that you make those final adjustments. But when they get onto the warm up, they kind of have a pretty good idea of exactly what they're doing. And it's just following into that routine so that they're ready to go. Well, speaking of ready to go. Are we ready to go? I think we're ready to go. We're going to go watch this and just some things to think about and put into perspective when you're watching this grand tour or the next grand tour come here find the data and enjoy the race ciao ciao